Good morning. Not feeling well, but God's word is true, and so we're going we're gonna to read it and we're going to study it today. And my prayer for us is that we would put into practice what the Lord teaches us today. Amen? I'm going to need you guys to have some energy because I'm lacking it today. So if I say something that you're like, oh, that's good, hoop and holler, okay? Today we're going to study about a detractor, a de- declaration, and a denier. Judas, how the world will know that we are truly Christ's disciples, and Peter. Just so you know, Jesus has been in charge of this entire account of his life and his death. There's nothing that's happening that's outside of his control. His time had not come, his time had not come, his time had not come, and yet now his time's come. And Jesus has concluded his public ministry, and now we're studying about the conversations that took place between Jesus and his disciples and the investment that he put into his disciples, his followers that will eventually abandon him in just a few hours and in just a few days. Jesus will be sent to the cross, but they and we are the beneficiaries of what is going to be taught to them. In these next many chapters, before Jesus actually gets arrested, we get to hear about what Jesus expects of his disciples. Last week, we studied what most see as the washing of the disciples' feet by Jesus, where the king of the kingdom of God got on his knees and wiped the dirt and grime off the nasty feet of the disciples. He did it in the place of a servant, and Peter didn't really understand what Jesus was doing, what his example was about, or really what the feet washing was entirely. Today, we see Jesus calling out a disciple, in quotes whose motives and purpose aren't pure, but yet will be used for the glory of God to be put on display. And so I don't know if you guys have a theology, if you will, of Judas, but today we're going to see how God can even use those who are messed up and tore up. John 13, verse 18, here's where we start. Jesus says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture He who shared my bread has turned against me. Jesus is predicting the betrayal of his own friend, Judas, to turn against him. And in other translations, like the one Scott read, it says to lift up the heel. It's a metaphorical expression, and it means to attack a person in an unperceived manner under the pretense of friendship so as to gain an advantage over him when that person's not on guard. Jesus begins that what he has and is saying does not apply to all the 12, even though he chose the 12. One was not chosen for the same purpose as all the others. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 41, verse 9, where the psalmist says, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. And that, that psalm is pointing to this very moment where Jesus' friend will betray Jesus' trust and the other disciples. Jesus knows who he's chosen. And it's a misunderstanding that anyone who is a Christian can be sustainable in their own flesh, be sustainable in their own work, but it is by God's election, his design, and plan that those who are his would persevere under hardship and difficulties throughout this life. Anyone dealing with hardships and difficulties? Come on. Come on. It is by his upholding us, by his hand and his word, that those who are his can continue to follow him and daily die to ourselves. Verse 19, 
I'm telling you now before it happens. So then when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. There it is again. And Jesus says this so that those who are listening would be able to yet again believe that Jesus is who he says that he is and showing his absolute sovereignty over even the betrayal that was about to come to him. And yet it is another sign that Jesus isn't just an ordinary anything, but he's the extraordinary son of God, that he is the Messiah. And yet this is another proof that Jesus knows what will happen before it even happens. Verse 20. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And, and, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Jesus uses the example of those who receive and believe in him will receive and believe in the Father. And yet first, he points out that those who accept his apostles and their, their teaching receive him. There's a huge disconnect in the world, church, of people that claim to be spiritual they claim to be godly. They might even claim to be Christians and God's possession, but they are absurdly biblically illiterate. I'm not saying they understand any and everything a seminary professor may agonize over, but they don't even see the Bible as an authority in who God is or who we are or how we can grow to look more like Christ. But to accept Christ means you accept what the apostles taught about him because to disregard what the word says is to disregard God entirely. Let me say that again. To disregard what the word says is to disregard God entirely. Verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Nailed it. Jesus was troubled in his spirit. This term troubled, it means agitated. It means unpeaceful. He was not at rest. Jesus is agitated because he knows that his friend, a man who has walked with him for at least three years, that Jesus had invested in, that he had cared for and brought along in his ministry, he was one of his closest allies, was about to betray him. But Jesus, he knows what's going to happen. He knows that Judas is going to sell him out. But what we have already been exposed to is that even this evil plan that is unfolding before our very eyes will be redeemed and used for the glory of God, church. Verse 22, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. <laughs> I wonder if the disciples became defensive in this moment. It doesn't say that they did, but I would guess human nature they probably started to think, no, 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 it couldn't be me. He's not talking about me. Or maybe they're going, well, they're quick to probably go, well, it's probably Peter. That dude opens his mouth all the time. He's probably trying to overcompensate. Or maybe it's Simon, the zealot. We thought that he had changed once he started following Jesus, but mm. verse 23, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? This is one of those instances where John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, does not refer to himself as I or even as John, but as the disciple whom Jesus loves. And we've talked about this before. We've been going through John forever. And as we've stated before, John didn't call himself that because he had an ego, and wanted everyone to just know that he was Jesus' favorite. See, it wasn't that at all. 
It was something a lot more near and dear to each of us. He, like every person who has submitted themselves to Jesus, ought to find their identity in the fact that Jesus loves them, that loves us, that loves you. And we know that John was speaking about himself, not because we guessed, not because some theologian decided that maybe this was possibly true, but because John himself writes it in his own letter. In John 21, 20 through 24, it says this, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Does that sound familiar from 38 seconds ago? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that the disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This, John says, is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. So this entire letter the letter or the book of John, as we've been studying it, it's written not by someone who guesses, but it's written by an eyewitness, one that was involved in the story and involved in all that Jesus said and did. So Peter whispers to the disciple whom Jesus loves, who is sitting next to Jesus, reclining at what is probably his right side, I'm just guessing, to ask Jesus who he's referring to, verse 26. Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. <laughs> Subtle, Jesus. <laughs> I do believe that Jesus used this as an example to point out to just a few who the traitor was rather than making a spectacle to everyone in attendance. And he fulfilled what we just read in Psalm 41. John 13, 27 says, As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do it quickly. This doesn't mean that Satan wasn't involved in Judas's plot or plan, but what John was stating was that Satan was very much involved in Judas's exercise of the plan that was about to unfold. So Jesus says, what you're going to do, do it quickly, as if to say, get it over with. Verse 28, but no one at the mill understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. John's explanation seems to address the fact that when John asked Jesus who he was referring to, Jesus didn't say what he said very loudly because the other disciples were confused to why Jesus said, do what you're going to do quickly, nor why Judas got up and left. Verse 31, when he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Say, what? Jesus' words, they seem redundant, but they're really more about the emphasis, which is glory. Now that Judas is gone, Jesus is pointing out that the plan is in motion for God's glory and redemptive plan to come to completion somewhat quickly. 
Jesus is looking past the cross and to the future victory of what the cross procures. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knew what the cross was accomplishing. He knew what he was going into because even though Friday is inevitable, church, Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming and he does not stay on the cross. He does not stay in the grave. He rises from the dead and that is where we get our hope. Verse 33, my children. (laughs) That's funny. Peter's like six years younger than him, maybe 10. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus points back to what he said to the crowd of Jews at a festival in John chapter 8, where he says, once more, verse 21, once more Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And then Jesus says a new command, which doesn't seem like a new command, in verse 34 of John 13. He says, a new command I give you to his disciples, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus has this new command, one that he expects of his disciples. Those who claim Jesus, they say, I rep Jesus, I follow Jesus. Well, guess what? He's told you what to do. He tells his disciples, minus Judas, to actually apply this to their lives, which is to love one another. See, the most evangelistic, the most compelling, and the most obedient thing a Christian can do is love one another as we have loved Christ. And I don't mean just stand up and greet your neighbor. This is not a love that is manifested by acting lovey-dovey. This is not an emotional uh, or emotions running wild kind of love. This is a sacrificial love that actually puts others before one's self. Paul talks about this to the church in Philippi. He says in Philippians 2, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Have the mind in you that is humble and counts others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, which is a bridge from that fruit of love to the root of love, which is Jesus Christ who modeled it and made it possible that we could love one another because he laid down his life for his sheep. And I'm a sheep. How we love one another, how we love other Christians, how we love other people who claim the same Christ that we do is the litmus test if we really do believe that we've been redeemed in the first place. Why? Because forgiven people forgive people. They just do. And people who have received grace give grace. It is love that we exude to each other in the church community. Those who claim that they are found in Christ that really speaks about our understanding of both of our salvation and our identity because of that salvation. 
Listen, I don't want us to be a community to think that as long as we study more Scripture and know more words in the original language or are incredibly expressive in worship, that that negates the need to actually love one another. Sorry, I'm getting my dad voice on. But I got to tell you, this is keeping me up at night, church, because the way that we love one another is how the world will know that he exists. You are a follower of Jesus, a Christian, a child of God. Through faith in Christ, you are a person under authority. Did you know that? You are a person under authority. You are not your own anymore. You do not call the shots anymore. Jesus is more to you than a master of your life, but he's not less. He comes to you with more than commandments, but not less. You are a person whose life is defined by the will of another, and his name is Jesus. What he wills, you want, Christian. And what he wills and commands in this verse is that we love each other, that followers of his love one another, a new commandment he gives us, not a suggestion, not a new idea, or a new possibility, or a new life option, but a new commandment. Love one another. So what's new about this command? Levitical law called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Leviticus 19.18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's like the Mandalorian. I have spoken. But what is new about this command is that Jesus begins with, as I have loved you. That's what's new about it. Because he's exemplified this. He's shown this. He's gotten on his knees and he's washed the disciples' feet. He has shown them over and over what it means for God to love them through Jesus Christ. As I have loved you, so you must love one another, verse 34. This is similar to how John begins chapter 13 that Pastor Mike taught last week. It says this, it was just, verse 1, it was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. As Mike pointed out last week, John's language pointed to a complete love. A love till the end, one that is fully from God, and Jesus says to his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. Listen, I got to be honest, I'm selfish in my love. Any of you? I totally love people who love me back. I love people that do stuff for me if I'm honest. But that's an easy love, church. But Jesus, the same Jesus who washed his disciples' feet, including Judas's, modeled and exuded a love that was godly and complete. And for those of us who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit and have been redeemed by faith in the Son of Jesus, the Son who is Jesus Christ, we are empowered to love one another as Jesus has loved us. That's how we love others and make them more important than even ourselves. R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite theologians of all time, who went to be with the Lord just a few years ago. He says it this way, in the New Testament, love is more of a verb than a noun. English teachers, it has more to do with acting than with feeling. 
The call to love is not so much a call to a certain state of feeling as it is to a quality of action. We look at other people as people created in God's image. And those who have been redeemed by God are obviously as important to Him as we are. So we love others as Christ has loved us. Listen, there is nothing more evangelistic and there is nothing more sanctifying than loving others as Christ has loved you. The world feels isolating even though we're more connected in this day and age than we've ever been because of social media, people are not actually more connected as much as more people are acquainted. I know what Kim Kardashian had for lunch last week. No, I don't. I'm just kidding. But see, we're not really involved with one another. We're not really in each other's lives. It's really easy to confuse a click of a like or a love on Facebook for what love really is And what love really is, is sacrifice done on behalf of someone else. Verse 35, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus explains that it is by this response to Jesus' love, which is to love one another, that we actually identify as Jesus' disciples, as his followers, as his ambassadors. Let me get straight, we rep Jesus, church. I want to see our community reach for the glory of Jesus' name. The parents I talk to at my kids' school, at kids' drop-off and pick-up, are a daily reminder of my oikos, my extended household that I get to be an influencer to, my neighbors, my friends from high school, and many others that I communicate with and talk to somewhat often are people that God has strategically placed me in their lives, or maybe he's strategically placed them in my life to sanctify me, to be a representative of Christ to them. But listen, it's not how well I communicate the gospel necessarily or how much I bombard people with my faith, but it is how I love other brothers and sisters in the faith that is compelling. And God tends to use to draw people to himself, but check it, he doesn't just draw people to himself, he draws people to his people, to the church, to be a place where they are to be adopted into the family of God. Man, it was actually really cool to watch you guys greet one another because I know most of you. And I know what's going on in your lives. And I know where things are difficult and I see where you're reliant upon our God and it's exciting. See, listen, there are no only children in the faith. I know I've said that before. But God uses his church, the same church that's messed up and sinful, and selfish as his plan A, to draw people to himself through the love that they have for one another, which becomes a light to shine in the darkness. In Acts 2, 44 through 47, Luke's writing, right after Pentecost, right after Peter gets up and preaches, and thousands upon thousands become Christians, he says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. That doesn't mean they all played Smash Brothers. This means that what they cared about were the same things. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
God added to their number daily. God was the catalyst for the understanding and the repentance. God used this unnatural love that the early church had for one another to include more and more people into his family, which is the church. Oh, you guys put a trash can here in case I throw up. Thanks, guys. I've had a really hard week. No, that's not true. I've had a really hard three weeks. I haven't felt good. I've gotten sick multiple times. I've slept terribly. Even after taking nighttime medicine, NyQuil sucks. I've woken up most nights at 1, 2, or 3 a.m., and I just cannot go back to sleep. I stay up thinking about, praying for, interceding on the behalf of this church community to love one another. Because if we cannot, if we can't love one another, if we cannot love one another, we cannot say for a second that we're about the Father's business. We cannot point to all of our activity, church, or us denying ourselves when there are pleasures of this world that seem so fun. We cannot point to our prayer life or our Bible time or even serving other people unless we are actually loving one another through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why we care about accountability so much. Did you guys know that? This is your first week. We care about accountability. This is why we care that you come and you worship with us consistently, weekly. Man, the early church did it every day. This is why we're willing to have hard conversations with people. Even though sometimes they're incredibly awkward, it's better to hash out our differences and love and respect one another than hide from each other because someone has hurt feelings. As an elder and a pastor in this church, I have to make tough decisions all the time for this church because I'll let you in on a little secret that may shock you. You guys ready? Just listen in. People in the church don't always get along. I know, crazy, right? If you're visiting, you're like, but I thought this church was great. Well, we're sinful, like every other church. And where people are, disagreements and selfishness abound. Take that to the bank. And unfortunately, there is no perfect church, because if there was one, once you got there, it wouldn't be perfect anymore. Bam! So I'll be here. And here's my admonishment to those who are part of Church of the Valley. Those who are bought into growing more into the likeness of Jesus together by being doers of the word for the right reasons. You can't say you love one another if you hide from the hard conversations. You can't love one another if you put your ambitions before someone else's. You cannot love one another if you're making it about you. It is only by receiving the grace that God has given you that you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to love others as you love yourself. So I, as the lead pastor of this church, am committed to unity around the gospel, not unity around potlucks, not unity around anything but the death and resurrection and the perfect life lived and the exaltation of Jesus and the fact that we can be adopted into the kingdom of God through belief in God's only Son. 
But I'm committed to unity around the gospel. I'm committed to accountability of the body of Christ. I'm accountable to all of you and to the elders and to other believers to be quick to apologize when I hurt someone, to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. I'm committed to caring for those who are bought in, who attend regularly and invest their time, talents, and treasures in the kingdom of God through this local church body. But if you don't like accountability, if you don't want to actually lay down your agenda for the glory of God, sorry for you, because God saves you to a people. So if you're new to Church of the Valley, kick the tires, attend a while, meet with the leaders, ask questions. But if you've been here a while... Jump in, buy in, start serving in some way, start being known and be part of us loving one another for the glory of God. Rant over, not really. If you love one another, he says. See, we know that the one another's is the way that John specifically in his letters to the church in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John explains followers of Jesus and how they ought to treat each other. So let me tell you what it says about the one another's. Are you ready? Buckle up. Here we go. Be at peace with one another, Mark 9, 50. Wash one another's feet, John 13. Love one another, 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 John 15. Love one another, John 15. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, Romans 12. Honor one another above yourselves, Romans 12. Live in harmony with one another, Romans 12. Love one another, Romans 13. Stop passing judgment on one another, Romans 14. Accept one another just as Christ has accepted you, Romans 15. Instruct one another, Romans 15. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Sweetie, yay. Romans 16. When you come together, eat, wait for each other, 1 Corinthians 11. Have equal concern for each other, 1 Corinthians 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Wow, Paul's all about that, 1 Corinthians 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss, 2 Corinthians 13. Serve one another in love, Galatians 5. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, you will be destroyed by each other, Galatians 5. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other, Galatians 5. Carry each other's burdens, Galatians 6. Be patient and bearing with one another in love, Ephesians 4. Be kind and compassionate to one another, Ephesians 4. Forgiving each other, Ephesians 4. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5, in humility, consider others better than yourselves, Philippians 2. Do not lie to each other, Colossians 3. Bear with each other, Colossians 3. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another, Colossians 3. Teach one another, Colossians 3. Admonish one another, Colossians 3. Make your love increase and overflow for each other, 1 Thessalonians 3. Love each other, 1 Thessalonians 4. Encourage each other, 1 Thessalonians 4. Encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 5. Build each other up, 1 Thessalonians 5. Encourage one another daily, Hebrews 3. Spur one another on towards good deeds, Hebrews 10. Encourage one another, Hebrews 10. Do not slander one another, James 4. Don't grumble against each other, James 5. Confess your sins to each other, James 5. Pray for each other, James 5. Love one another deeply from the heart, 1 Peter 3. Live in harmony with one another, 1 Peter 3. 
love each other deeply, 1 Peter 4. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, 1 Peter 4. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, 1 Peter 4. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, 1 Peter 5. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Yeah, yeah, 1 Peter 5. And then I've got love one another seven times, 1 John 3, 4, and 5. It's 59 places in the New Testament that the one another's are used. If loving one another is how we show our identity of being found in Christ and a follower of His, not loving one another, not obeying God at His Word, not being empowered by the Holy Spirit is exactly what the world gets to use to excuse our God. Because His people don't actually act as if His commands are real. There's a DC talk song that I used to listen to. I don't listen to DC talk anymore, just being honest. But at the beginning of one of the songs, there's a quote from a guy named Brennan Manning. And he says this way, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. Say my name, say my name. Never mind. Verse 36. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? (laughs) Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. It's interesting that Peter's question is one to what Jesus said prior to his command of loving one another. As if Peter ignored the part and just wants to know where Jesus is going. Are any of us like this? Jesus stated in verse 33, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told you, told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. And even though Jesus says you cannot follow now, he does say you will follow later, Peter. Jesus points out what Peter will do, but first he's going to deny Christ three times. See, the disciples could not follow to the cross. That was Jesus' work to complete. But as his work would be completed through the death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead, the disciples' work was just about to begin, which is the unfinished work of Christ, where he empowers his disciples to proclaim and declare that Jesus is Lord. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we've heard it many times, Jesus speaking to his disciples before he ascends to heaven, he says, but you will receive power. Say power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, this is the unfinished work of Christ. Guess who he gives it to? Those of us who trust him to preach and proclaim Not to stand on the street corner with a sign, but to share with our oikos, the the extended household, the people around us, that we love Christ. To invite them into a community that loves Christ and loves one another. Verse 37, Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. See, Peter again in this chapter is over eager to do what he thinks is right. No one will ever question Peter's fervor, his urgency. But unfortunately, like telling Jesus, like Mike taught last week, that Peter doesn't want him to wash him. No, you can't wash me, Lord. And then overcorrecting and expecting Jesus to wash all of him, Peter may think he, he is doing what the Lord wants, but he's really just pushing his own agenda. 
man, I resonate with Peter. Not because he's so bold when he preaches at Pentecost, the least seeker-sensitive sermon ever, even though I rarely get told I'm seeker-sensitive anymore. But I resonate with Peter because I believe that my passion for Christ is what he expects of me. And yet sometimes he isn't telling me to take the hill, but to sit at his feet, to rest in his love, to obey his commands and the small stuff rather than try to do all the big stuff first. Verse 38, then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Wow, Jesus, you're kind of a Debbie Downer, aren't you? Peter's all about serving and following Jesus. Why do you got to tell him he's going to deny you? Well, for one, because Peter denies him three times. And as Jesus gets arrested, the very next day, we get to look in and see what happens. Here's what it says in Luke 22, 54 through 62. Then seizing him, they led him away, this Jesus, and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter, this most forthright of the disciples, the spokesperson for the followers of Christ, when Jesus was seized and arrested, Peter denied knowing the man. I'm grateful for Peter because this story doesn't end this way. Even though if you stop reading it, it feels like Peter has done the unforgivable sin to deny the Lord in the Lord's hour of need. But look what happens at the end of the Gospel of John. In John 21, it says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Jesus reinstates Peter. 
After Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he ate with Peter, and he asked him three times, do you love me? Each time giving him a commission, feed his lambs, take care of his sheep, feed his sheep. These are three commissions, even though they seem redundant, are all special in and of themselves. He tells him to feed the babies in the faith with the word. He tells them to pastor and shepherd the flock of the sheep that are his. And he tells them to feed the sheep, those older in the faith as well. Peter, the guy who denied Christ, the one who constantly chose the wrong application. When Jesus told him to do something, Peter, who would go on to follow Jesus onto death on a cross, flipped upside down, proclaiming and declaring until his final breath that Jesus is Lord. I resonate with Peter, not in the good, but in the bad, but I'm grateful for my God who would reinstate him. Listen, if God can use a detractor in Judas for the glory of Jesus' name, if he can declare to his followers to love one another as he has loved us, and he can use and reinstate a denier like Peter, don't think for a second that God can't use you, that he can't reinstate you, that he can't commission you to love one another as evidence to the world that you are his. Amen.